Welcome to Pound the Rock. My name's Joseph Cacharo. I'm here in studio with my fellow co-host, Joe Wolfon. What up, man? I swear you sound more like Sean Connery every time <laughs> man, you do I, that I intro. I don't get it. I don't, I don't have a lisp, man. Uh, it's not about the lisp. It's about the intonation. Well, anyway, what up? Do you like my cadence? or I love your cadence. All right. Let's hope the listeners agree. Uh, another thing the listeners probably love is the NBA Finals so far. We're two games into what looks like is going segue, to be man. a long and competitive championship series for the Larry O'Brien Trophy. So let's dig right the hell into it and talk about this Raptors-Warriors matchup. I guess we should start with the most recent. Uh, we can work our way back if we need to, but game two... Um, a lot to dig into from that game. What was your most significant takeaway from it? Um, man, that's a great question. Uh, I think number one has got to be, and this was honestly a thing in game one also. It just wasn't as much of a thing, but the Raptors really have not come up with any kind of a solution for those Steph back screens. And I sort of... You saw it happen a couple times in game one, game one and, and specifically with him screening for Clay. You figure that they would just switch that action, right? And and at least come into game two prepared to see that a lot uh, because it did have some success in game one, even with the Warriors struggling like they did in the half court. That was one of the things that they did have some success with. And, you know, for whatever reason, they've been very reluctant to switch. I, I think... You know, I guess there are reasons for that. Like, when you switch, there are seams that open up, and you give Steph a little bit of leeway, and he can get open, and he can get off a three. Or, you know, maybe they just don't read it properly. They think that Steph is lifting to the three-point line, and instead he's slamming you with a back screen, and suddenly nobody is guarding the cutter, and, and you're getting a wide-open dunk or a layup at the rim. It happened so many times in that third quarter when the Warriors basically just you know pulled away and managed to hold on to a lead that they built over the course of seven minutes with a, an insane 27-3 to run. Obviously, their defense was part of that too, but... And an 18 nothing run to start the third quarter. And it was just a, a layup line, just a parade of layups and dunks off of back cuts time and time again and the Raptors just didn't really come up with an answer for it until you know Clay went out of the game and they go to the box and one at the end of the game and, and it's you know at that point that they're able to take away anything going to the basket because they have somebody there pretty much at all times um, but anytime they're playing you know simple man defense uh, when they're having to key in uh, you know man to man they they're, they're not paying attention to those back cuts and the two guys involved in that action are whether it's like a communication issue or whether there's just so much fear about Steph getting free that they you know can't guard it properly they clearly need to figure something out because uh the Warriors I mean Curry got I think four screen assists in that third quarter alone as far as I can see or would expect like they're gonna keep doing that until the Raptors can come up with an answer for it so you know that's that's thing number one for me what about you uh yeah I mean I think the way that the Warriors picked the Raptors apart picked an elite defense apart for the last two and a half quarters of that game um was pretty mind-boggling and like the thing is it's not they didn't just pick them apart because Steph was coming up and pulling up and draining shots like they picked them apart because of the back cuts that you mentioned that the Raptors were falling asleep on but also because of the playmaking brilliance of the team's non-shooters mm-hmm. like Draymond Green DeMarcus Cousins and Andre Godala combined for 21 assists in that game the Warriors had an assist on all 22 made field goals in the uh, second actually half. insane 34 of their 38 field goals came with an assist like 
the way they moved the ball, moved their bodies. Um, 22 it, on 22 and a half is, is just unbelievable. Yeah. And again, like you look at the guys that were dishing them out. It was mainly Draymond Green, DeMarcus Cousins, and Andre Iguodala. DeMarcus Cousins was catching the ball on the elbows and in the post and then just firing these one-handed passes that like remind you like, oh yeah, DeMarcus Cousins, when he's healthy, pretty damn good all-around offensive basketball player. And and that's another funny thing of this whole thing too, right, is that no KD, Clay leaves, and a lot of people, and I understand it, thinking like, okay, well, the Raptors should have won that game. Like, look at what they were missing. And I agree with that. But at the same time, it's like, man, the, the other team still had Steph Curry, Draymond Green, and DeMarcus Cousins on the floor. Like, that's a hell of an offensive team. Well, and- the thing I would say to that too is... You know, if they started that game from scratch and Clay is not playing, then exactly. you can say, yeah, they should absolutely win that game. But Clay goes out with, I think, eight minutes to go in the fourth quarter, yeah, and the Warriors are up less, by yeah. seven. So even at that point, the, the Warriors are still in, in position yeah. to win, right? And and the fact that the Raptors made it a game at the end is pretty incredible. After that scoring binge that the Warriors went on, for them, between the 540 mark of the fourth quarter, and I think it was the six-second mark when that... Iguodala three went down they did not score five and a half minutes they did not score and that's basically the exact same drought that the Raptors had at the start of the third quarter it was a weird game man like kind of unlike anything that I've seen and I mean ultimately if you look at it on the whole like the Raptors had a better defensive rating in this game than they had in game one and it didn't look quite as good because in the half court like you said, they were quite a bit worse. Um, in the half court in game one, they were magnificent, and they really just got picked apart in transition. The Warriors got nothing in transition this game. They got zero second chance points, and yet, uh, you know, they still managed to have an above-average half-court offensive rating because of that brilliant third quarter where they're just cutting and passing and running circles around the Raptors, and uh, it just looked like they were staggering from a punch they'd taken. Like, they didn't know what hit them. And, you know, a lot of what happened at the other end was them just missing shots. Like, they did get 14 wide open, what were classified as wide open threes in the second half, uh, which is almost as many as the Warriors got in the entire game. The Warriors got 16 in the game. So, they were getting good looks, and they weren't going down, but... And on the other end, Quinn Cook's hitting daggers, like... Right. I mean, there's a a lot of just weird stuff happens like that when when you're dealing with small sample sizes. Um, but I also think, I mean, and we can get into this too. Like, there was a lot of process stuff with the Raptors' offense that was not good. Uh, but, you know, the big thing is just if Clay Thompson's not playing in that game three, then they can continue to get fun. I don't think we're going to necessarily see a box in one again. <laughs> this is what we got to talk about. The, like, yeah. Press but, row was stunned. Yeah. I was at game two. Press row was stunned. I went back and watched the broadcast. Jeff Van Gundy equally stunned. Coaches, why, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering why this is so stunning. Because it's literally never used in the NBA. Like this That's is, not entirely true. Like I'd It's say, been used this season. Okay, so people are pointing out the fact that some, I think the Nets used it against Kemba at yeah, one point Yeah, and this even, season. like, I don't know if I would classify it as a boxing one, but if you watch if some of the teams that played zone, and there were a bunch of teams that played a lot of zone this year, some of the games against the Rockets, when... A lot of the, the secondary Rockets guys were injured, and it was just a Harden show. Maybe they wouldn't quite go full box and one, but it was like a Harden bent zone where you basically had one person checking him up top, and they wouldn't track him all over the floor, but it, 
It is more or less the same thing. But but I think that's the difference. Like, more or less isn't the same thing. And the Raptors went with a legitimate box and one. They had the box and one. Fred right. Van Vliet was hounding Steph Curry no, 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 I understand. baseline to baseline. I just non- mean for, for people... For people to be shocked by it, right, and and like mind boggled when it seems to me to be a pretty intuitive strategy given 100%. like the, the lineup that you're dealing with and around Steph. That's what I was going to get to is that like everyone was so stunned by it, and to me this is um, it's a good look on Nick Nurse because this is the exact kind of move that I don't think enough NBA coaches make. I'm not specifically saying the box and one, but it's the kind of thing where like. I don't know, people are calling it a middle school defense and it's like so rarely used in the NBA. And if it doesn't work, say they get picked apart during that stretch, Nick Nurse is getting mercilessly ridiculed. Is he though? I think he is. I mean, man, on like Twitter search, Nick Nurse or Raptors box right now and you get get the odd people praising. But for the most part, you can find tweets and not just from like random fans, like people that consider themselves analysts and whatever. Right kind of laughing at the fact the Raptors turned to this. And it, said, it speaks to Steph Curry's, obviously, brilliance and the fact that without Klay Thompson, he had to be a one-man show, kind of. But again, I also think it speaks to not only Nick Nurse's creativity, but let's just call it uh, his Sam Cassell's, if you know what I mean, as a coach. Because I do not believe... I don't know how many other coaches in the NBA would actually have the stones to do this, to throw this out there in the finals. It's the right move, uh-huh. but there's too many occasions when NBA coaches don't make the right move because of the aesthetics of it, the perception of it, whatever you want to call it. Right. Steph Curry called it a janky defense. Like full credit to Nick Nurse. It worked. The Warriors went 0 for 6 with two turnovers, zero points on eight possessions during that span. Unfortunately the Raptors only scored seven points themselves. That was one of the most creative in-game adjustments I've ever seen a coach make. Yeah, no, I mean I and I definitely tip my hat to Nick Nurse for that, but I don't you want to call it Sam Cassell's, like he has the stones to do it, but I, I really just think it was desperation. Like if, if this was a tie game or a one or two possession game, then I understand being like, oh my God, this is insane. What are you thinking? And you, and you do risk a lot of backlash, but he turned to it when they were down 12 midway through the fourth quarter and nothing had been working. So I think turning to it out of desperation when it's like your win probability at that point is like 2% maybe then it's kind of like you really don't have anything to lose. And, you know, if the only thing you're really going to risk is being called out by people on Twitter saying it's an eighth-grade defense, then I think that's totally fine. And, again, that doesn't take anything away from the fact that Nick Nurse actually had to push that button exactly. and decide to go, go ahead and do it. Um, but I just, like, I'll, I'll admit I was watching it and, like, not really appreciating that like it was I was like oh they're going they're they're zoning up and Fred's like tracking Steph and to me that just made good intuitive sense you know what I'm saying so I mean definitely an interesting wrinkle I just feel like uh first of all I probably think the Warriors are going to drag out this clay thing until right before tip right they're not going to tip their hand so one way or another, I mean, maybe the Raptors have that in their back pocket, but I don't know if they go into that game expecting to use that at any point. And I think they probably think that if they do, even if Clay isn't playing, that the Warriors are going to be ready with some counters. Yeah, they'll figure it out at some point. As for Clay and his status... Like the surprise I, factor is what made right, that work. Exactly. Um, my favorite screen grabs, though, from it were like... There were a few possessions where you could see like the four non-Curry Raptors defenders were already stationed in their zones inside the three-point line before the Warriors had even crossed center court. It was incredible to watch. But yeah, in terms of Clay, 
This guy played with a high ankle sprain in the finals last year. Has never missed a playoff game. His pain threshold must be insane. I I understand that a hamstring issue is pretty dicey mm-hmm. um, with only a couple days between, but I don't know. Like I cannot see him missing this game. How effective can he be if he plays? But now that's another question. Like, I don't know, man. Like to to come back the game after suffering a hamstring strain. Like when was the last time that's happened? Someone, uh, I can't remember who wrote it, but I was reading this morning. Someone wrote like just this year alone, more than 80% of hamstring strains resulted in missed time in the NBA. And even just watching it, you know, like they haven't given anything away as far as the severity, but I mean, the Raptors had a five on four and Clay literally was like, couldn't even walk. He was standing at half court and frantically signaling for the Warriors to give a foul so he can get off the floor. Meanwhile, Serge Ibaka walks into a wide-open three that cuts the lead from 10 to 7, and Clay can't even get back into the play to contest. He just needs to get off the floor. Walks immediately to the locker room. You see him hobbling after the game. He's got ice on it. I just, again, I'm not a doctor, but just from watching it, it's like I don't know how two games later you can be ready to play. I mean, maybe they shoot him up with cortisone, but... Uh, it seems like it's going to be pretty dicey. And, and you know, regardless, like, I'm sure he'll give it a go. He'll see how it feels in warm-ups, maybe. And the Warriors will just play their cards as close to the vest as possible, as they've been doing with the Durant thing, frankly. Like, we don't really have any clarity on that situation yeah. whatsoever. So uh, there's so much that's up in the air right now. Yeah. Kevon Looney out for the series with a right. fracture. At least that's something his- we know. Right. We can say. Looney's not, which, which sucks. Because he's been great. Like, this whole playoff run, man, he's really... like He had a good season. He when was I think, their most dependable big in the playoffs. Yeah. All season, he, he has been. And, um, you know, this has been like a real nice coming out party for him. And I think he started to get a little bit more recognition throughout the season. But it really came to the fore during the playoffs. And, you know, I think specifically toward the tail end of that Rockets series. And, look, the Warriors... I think would prefer to switch pick and rolls involving Kawhi. It's it's tough to do that with the other bigs on their roster, man. And I know like Cousins had a lot of success on switches in that game too. We can talk about Boogie. He had a magnificent game out of nowhere after looking pretty rusty uh, in game one, like his first game in six weeks. But um. I, I just don't know. I don't know if that's going to hold up. Like, they, they really, really need Cousins all of a sudden. And as as good as he did look in that game, too, I think that's a bit of a scary proposition for them right now. And like I said before, when we were doing our series preview, Kawhi really is the one guy who can totally burn him in pick and roll, right? The rest of the Raptors team, not really built to attack those small, big mismatches. Lowry tried it a couple times. Lowry tried three times. Boogie stonewalled him. Did not score. Norm Powell tried it, got blocked at the rim. Like, Boogie was solid, and the Raptors just don't have that explosiveness. They don't have the pull-up jump shooting. They don't spread you out. I mean, Gasol was a little bit more hesitant to pull the trigger in game two, which also made it easier for Boogie, I think. So, it's... Like, I think if somebody's going to attack him, it's got to be Kawhi. And it was obviously going to be really nice for the Warriors to have the option to just go to Looney. And then it's a much more viable situation to switch. Without him, I mean, it just a lot is falling on Cousins' shoulders here, man. Like, they they already had to dust off Bogut. And I know he got 
those th- three lobs that he put down, but he was still a minus six in yeah. seven minutes. All he had to do for those three lobs was beat a smaller Raptor to the rim because the rest of it was done by like the rest right. of the Warriors' action, like offensive action right. on that play, and then either Draymond or Steph just finding him on a lob. Right, and then he's like, I mean, he's even less mobile than Cousins at this right. point, and in those seven minutes that he played, the Warriors had a 140 defensive rating in a game that the Raptors really struggled to score. So as much as you might have watched that and be like, oh, Bogut, look at all the lobs he's getting. Like, no, Bogut is not good. Yeah. And they're in a tight spot with their he big man rotation. was not in the rotation. league like three months ago, yeah. man. So I think maybe the big question becomes, I mean, obviously when Durant comes back, it's like at least 15 minutes a game of, of Draymond at center. So that solves one problem. But... Until then, or unless that happens, because we don't even know yet if Durant's going to play, I mean, do they still go to that? Look, I mean, they've done it for like a couple of minutes in this series. Do they, you know, they slide Livingston in there? Here's the thing too, though. Do they slide McKinney in there or even Quinn Cook? Man, like, listen to these options, though. Like, Sean Livingston, I have great respect for his career and what he's done. And look, he made a hell of a play on the Iguodala three to like, like if you go back and watch that and just freeze it before he catches it, I do not understand how Kawhi did not come away with that ball. Great instincts from Livingston to make that catch, turn around and make the pass to Iguodala. All that said, Livingston's been pretty bad in this postseason run and has mostly looked pretty washed. Andre Iguodala, who is having a pretty good postseason, before game two, he hadn't hit a three since the second round. Mm -hmm. So if we're just looking on the offensive side of the ball, like that's a problem. Clay Thompson, we've already talked about the hamstring. Looney out. Uh, Durant, we obviously know. like the, His health is a question mark. Boogie, as good a game two as he had. This guy missed six weeks up until a couple games ago. Uh, Iguodala had an MRI earlier, th- or like last week for a knee issue. He's been, like, this team is a tire fire when it comes to health right now. And, yes, they they managed to steal game two, and good for them. And Rudy Tomjanovich quote, don't ever underestimate the heart of a champion. But... This Raptors team, despite how they probably feel after letting Game 2 get away, is really good. And I just feel like at some point, these injuries are going to catch up to the Warriors. Now, maybe they get KD back in Game 3 and all of this is moot. But if they don't, and Clay's not 100%, like, I, I don't see how they win this series. Again, that's they just miraculously return to health in the next 24 to 48 hours. Like, this is an insane run of bad luck. In the yep. finals. Now, no one's going to feel bad for them because, again, they were still able to finish game two with Steph Curry, Draymond Green, and DeMarcus Cousins on the court. Right. And for the Raptors, this Not is... Not to mention the fact that in 2015, they right. went up against the Cavs team without Kyrie Irving or Kevin Love, and that was and, how they won their first championship. Yeah, so. and from the Raptors' perspective, this is exactly why you go all-in, per se, or, you know, as all-in as you can, I guess, without trading Pascal Siakam. But, you know, this is why teams that are perennial playoff contenders but not quite top tier contenders make the all in moves because you never know when okay it, yeah but all right look, can, when kevin let, durant let me just push back on pulls that his a little bit because i don't think that any team you know whether they were in the raptors position or not would say no to the trade that the raptors made you know what i mean i, I don't they, they weren't making that trade being like let's make this all in move because you never know what's going to happen but i'm not even just I talking think, about Kawhi. i'm talking about the marcus all deal too and like just yeah. in general like, no, i think you the, always do what you can to improve your team every you, you know, every team has a different timeline and a different window of contention. And I think, you know, the Raptors were definitely close enough that upgrading from DeMar DeRozan to Kawhi Leonard was worthwhile. And 
certainly the the trade to get Gasol at the deadline has worked out really, really well for them. Um, and, but what I'm but, saying is that even with those trades, if the Warriors are healthy, they still have no chance of winning. And that's what everyone would point to, whether it's the Raptors or another team making those moves. But again, you really do just never know. And like the Warriors had this crazy run of bad injury luck and it opened up for the Raptors, whoever else might have come out of the East. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I just, I really think it's it's going to come down to to Durant like when when can he play can he play and and what state is he going to be in when he does because again like this this big man rotation has suddenly become an issue and I feel like if Durant comes back to a certain extent it's solved like they're still going to need probably more minutes from Cousins than they would have expected at the start of the series and than they would have been comfortable with frankly but the ability to just downsize and go to that you know, infallible Hamptons five lineup it makes a lot of this stuff go away. Uh, and it certainly puts the Raptors defense in a bind because like as much as they've had success in the half court, like I, I, I mean, you saw the cracks in that game too. And you know, that was with playing two, sometimes three non shooters at once playing clay, Draymond, Steph, and KD at the same time is just, uh, I mean, that's going to blow holes oh. in any defense. And, and the Raptors, I think, have shown through these first two games that I don't, like, uh, they can't score enough, I don't think, to keep up with whatever the Warriors are going to be able to do to them. As good as their defense is, I don't think they have enough offensive firepower to keep up. Yeah, and let's be clear here. Like, it, if Kevin Durant comes back in this series and it's tied or the Warriors lead, it's a wrap. <laughs> Unless it's uh, like 3-3 three, three, because then it's a one game and whatever, anything can happen. But if it's if it's tied, mm-hmm. anything about 3-3 three, three, or the Warriors lead when Kevin Durant comes back, it's a wrap. Um, I, okay. Well, I mean, I don't agree with that. Like, obviously, I would give a big edge to the Warriors, but I don't think it's a wrap. And so this is actually... Unless he comes back and Clay also, like... Yeah, I mean, so here's another thing, and I wrote this in a column that's going to be dropping a little bit later today, but Kawhi's defense was quietly very bad in that game, too. He was really slow getting back in transition. He was really slow to help from the weak side, even when he was guarding guys like Iguodala or McKinney in the corner. Like, the help just wasn't really coming. And he got back cut by Clay a couple of times. I don't, I don't really know how to put into words like how he's managed to like carve out this playoff run. But sometimes you watch him, and it's like he's running in mud. He's not getting much lift. He's moving super slowly. But then out of nowhere, he'll just rise up and dunk all over somebody. Or like or grab a rebound yeah. in a crowd of like four people. Like I put a compilation on Twitter today. Like his some of the rebounds he grabbed in that game are obscene. Like that was all, one of all the, playoffs really. He yeah. he had some in the Milwaukee series and the Philly series for like offensive rebounds that did not make like they seem to defy the laws of physics. Yeah. And then it's like you watch him and for, for two and a half quarters, he his jumpers are all short. He's got no legs. He's not getting to the rim. Then suddenly, like late third and fourth quarter, he's bulldozing through guys, getting to the rim at will, getting to the free throw line whenever he wants. Some of his and ones in game two were like his strength going yeah. to the rim is 
unbelievable. It's like I, maybe he just has some reservoir that he's always leaving a little bit of gas in, but I just I don't know how to gauge it from one moment to the next, whether it's fatigue, whether it's this hamstring and now this knee injury apparently that he's dealing with. You know, sometimes he just really doesn't look healthy at all, and then sometimes he does stuff that I'm like, how could a person who isn't physically right be doing this? But the point I wanted to make was, I actually think Kawhi is like not a very good help defender. And it's really interesting because there was a great detail in that athletic story, which was detailing his seasons at San Diego State, where uh, Kawhi would apparently like say to his coach, like, I don't understand why I have to play help defense. Why can't everybody just stay, like, stay in front of their man the way that I do? Man-to-man defense is what he understands. It's always come more naturally to him. And so I don't actually think they've been particularly well-served having him be a helper and having him guard non-threats because he's guarded them the way that he would guard, like, a, you know, not quite the way that he would guard a KD, but that's just sort of his mindset, I think, is, like, he'll take his man and that's sort of what he's about. So I think giving him that KD assignment, it's like you're not losing too much by taking him away as a help defender and having him just be able to hone in on that one assignment, especially against a guy who really likes to isolate, might not be such a bad thing. But if KD doesn't come back, well, like what, where are you putting Kawhi defensively? Because you're not putting him on Steph. Because I think you let you let Fred Van Vliet, Danny Green, and Kyle Lowry do the job they're doing, which sure. has been pretty damn good. Like yeah. in the first half of Game Two, the Warriors were having trouble getting Steph the ball, let alone getting him a clean look. One hundred percent off ball work those guys are doing. So like, I, I think do you I put think him he, on Clay. Like I, I don't know. Like who do you put him on if KD doesn't come back? Because I agree with what you're saying that no, I really I think that you keep him on Draymond as much as you can and let him roam. Let him roam a bit, but more so, I think you just want him there so that they can switch that action. Yeah. I mean, that's the most, da- like, as long as KD is out, that's the most dangerous action that the Warriors are going to be able to run. There's obviously a lot of other stuff they can do. Their split action is super hard to guard, and Draymond doesn't even necessarily have to be involved in that play, and it is still impossible to read and impossible to guard. So they, they obviously have a lot of different things that they can do to you, but... If you can neutralize that Steph Draymond pick and roll, you're going to be in pretty good shape. I mean, Kawhi's had some slip ups, man. Even in game two, like there was one time he was sagging way off of Draymond and Steph walked into a wide open three. He's just got to be better. Like, he, he has to be better at the defensive end for the Raptors to have a chance. And I, I think that he will be. I think it was just a weird off night for him because I don't think I've seen him play a worse defensive game in the playoffs, frankly. But. I think that's the best configuration for them is to to have him on Draymond. He can, I think, at certain points crowd him a bit and make it hard for him to dribble and like get into those drive and swings that he got super comfortable with in that third quarter. Like Draymond's such a momentum player, and it's a little bit like Ben Simmons. Like he's a guy who, when he gets a full head of steam, can be a whole handful to deal with. Like his ability to make passes on the move, and and so many teams sort of play him by giving him 20 feet of space and sometimes that can work against them Kawhi always sort of played up on Simmons to try and take his dribble away make him uncomfortable turn him over I think he can do that with Draymond a bit you know maybe don't try and roam so much but actually crowd him a so that you're ready to switch on to Steph if they run that pick and roll and b so that you know you can take away those dribble handoffs so that you aren't letting him you know drive into the teeth of the defense and then pick out shooters on the perimeter. Uh, I think I think that's probably the best place for him to, to park himself. And, you know, it's just going to come down to 
how well can he actually defend? Because, again, he, he didn't look particularly good doing it last game. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download the Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. I think another interesting um, subplot so far has been what the Warriors are doing on the other end to Kawhi Leonard. So he hasn't shot the ball well in this series at all, even in Game 1. But I thought a big difference was in Game 1, the Warriors were sending a lot of bodies to Kawhi, but it was very predictable traps and very predictable coverages. Kawhi gets the ball, everyone goes to him. And Kawhi, even though he wasn't racking up um, general assists, he was getting a lot of secondary assists, and if they did count them, tertiary assists, because um, he was moving the ball, because it was a very predictable thing, and the Raptors' offense was flowing well. I think what the Warriors did a better job of in Game 2, whether it was by design or not, is I thought they mixed those coverages a little better. The timing of their traps seemed to be like vary throughout the game, and it genuinely seemed to catch Kawhi off guard. Whether it was just him having an off night, as you mentioned, like he was on the defensive end, or him genuinely being surprised by the way the Warriors were covering him, you could tell he just seemed a lot less decisive. He was a lot slower moving the ball and making those reads. And um, again, credit the Warriors, because I thought between Iguodala and Draymond at times, they did a good job on him, like as good a job as you can do on Kawhi one-on-one. But the way they varied their traps and kind of mixed their coverages on him really seemed to discombobulate him. I I agree with all of that. I think he was pretty slow making those reads, especially compared to how good it seemed like he was getting at making those reads and, and making those snap decisions. He had 21 assists over the three previous games, you know, going back to games five and six against Milwaukee and game one against the Warriors. His passing out of those traps had been so keen and so intuitive. It was a little bit surprising to see how slow he was to make those decisions. And the thing I, I've been saying about Kawhi for a while is I actually think he's a very good passer. Like the ability is there. I've seen him make some gobsmacking passes yeah. this season. It's just the reads that haven't quite caught up yet. And we saw a lot of that in game two, I think. A little bit of tunnel vision. Yes. And part of that is that the Raptors, I don't think, did it as good a job as they've done in, in their previous few games of relocating around him. And... Uh, particularly in those last two games against Milwaukee, but also in game one against the Warriors, the guys around him were moving, screening away from the ball, cutting into open space. Lowry, especially, I just like don't think did as good a job in game two as he had you know, in previous games of just relocating and finding open space. Van Vliet, I think, was still actually quite good at it. But... There are, like you can go back and watch the film and, and there are times you can freeze the frame and the Raptors' floor balance is just all off. Like there are times they're running their five-out offense and all five Warriors defenders are keyed in on Kawhi. They're bunched up around the paint and they are all looking at him and there are two guys pinched in ready to protect against the drive. But the Raptors aren't spaced out. He has nowhere to pass the ball where it's going to be a productive pass. He can't puncture the defense at the point of attack. And it's like, people got to recognize that. You got to space out. And like, there, there's another one where uh, they run pick and roll with Kawhi and Ibaka. 
and Siakam's in the dunker spot, and Norm is in one corner, and Fred is in another corner, and Ibaka really should probably pop in that situation, but he rolls into Siakam's space. Siakam ends up with the ball, and literally all five Raptors are below the dotted line, which means all five Warriors defenders are also below the dotted line, which means when Siakam goes up for a layup, Draymond Green swats it the hell out of bounds. It's just stuff like that that's simple. It's like, like get your floor balance in order, actually space out, and make things a little bit easier on yourself. And I, you know, I was just going back and forth trying to figure out, like, was this a transcendent performance from the Warriors? Or was it kind of just an epic choke by the Raptors? And I don't... I lean a lot closer to it being a transcendent Warriors performance than a, a, a Raptors choke. They were choke. locked in on both ends in that like they stretch were, when they went on that 20 They were outstanding. Yeah. But it, it was definitely like... A little bit of both, yeah, agreed, or, or a lot, or a lot of transcendent warriors, and I, at least some Raptors choking because they they helped the Warriors out for sure. I will say, like the Raptors probably could have been up twenty at halftime yes. if not for Clay Thompson's shot making in the first half. Like the Raptors' half court defense in that first half was unbelievable. Literally, the only thing the Warriors were getting was Klay Thompson contested jumpers, and it just so happened that he hit almost all of them. Like, you take even a couple of those away, and things look a lot different going into halftime. Now, I'm not saying it means the Raptors would have won or the Warriors wouldn't have had the third quarter they had, but I think that's something that is a little forgotten because he ended up leaving the game and not being there down the stretch and because of the way the Warriors dominated that third quarter. Had it not been for Klay Thompson's shot-making in the first half, that game might have been a blowout. Yeah, and I, you know, there are a lot of things that you could point to. Yep. Uh, there were, and I, look, I'm, this is not a gripe about the officiating, but it was there was a tight whistle, right? It was abysmal. So, I think, you know, whatever the fouls evened out. I don't think you know they necessarily favored one team over the other, but the fact that it was being called so tight, I think the Raptors were quite physical in Game 1. They weren't able to be physical, obviously, in Game 2. A lot of ticky-tack stuff's getting called. And I, they were never quite able to put a run together where they got in a good rhythm, you know, where they were able to pull away and really get the crowd into the game. And I think that that did help the Warriors a bit. The fact that it slowed the game down, they kept going to the free throw line. I mean, I mean, Steph has just done a wonderful job through these first two games of foul baiting. And that's, again, not a knock. He's done a really good job of it. And pretty much all of them have been legitimate fouls. Whether or not he's exaggerated the contact, whether he's maybe leaped into a guy. I think a couple of them, he initiated that contact. Sure, but... Not in a legal but way. But, I mean, who doesn't? You know, I, I think everybody does that to a certain extent. And I'm not, I'm not used to seeing Steph grift as hard as he's been grifting but the Warriors have had a tough time generating offense in the half court and he's done whatever he's had to do to get them going so that was a big thing that kept them in the game in the first half as well and I think I I mean look we don't have we're, we're Toronto guys uh we're we based we're, we're based in Toronto um and so I'm not going to pretend that I don't have any rooting interest in this series. I had like a queasy feeling in the pit of my stomach when they went into the half, only up five. It just seemed Man, like... Norman Powell had an open three-pointer to give them what would have been a 14-point lead. And the building was rocking. If that goes down, the roof blows off. There's less than two minutes left in the first half. He misses it. 
Clay immediately comes back, hits a three, and instead uh, it was now an eight-point game. It went from 11 to eight instead of 11 to 14. They end up going in. It's a little thing, but I like I had that same queasy feeling at that moment when Norm missed that shot and Clay came back, and it's like. Oh, it felt like they were up more. It's only eight now, and like mm-hmm. Steph's starting to get rolling, Clay's rolling. That's when I had that feeling like, uh-oh, here come the Warriors. Yeah, and it's funny because it's like I sort of had that feeling for a brief moment in game one also. The Warriors cut the lead to four points, I want to say, in the fourth quarter, and that was with Steph on the bench. And for whatever reason, it's just like the Raptors – managed to ward off any Warriors run and continue to keep that distance where it never got down to being a one-possession game. In this one, obviously, they weren't able to weather the storm, and, and that third quarter just turned into a total avalanche. I I think it's possible, if Clay is good to go, I think it's totally possible that that avalanche just carries over to game three back at Oracle it's possible and and the Raptors just look shell-shocked and find themselves down 15 after a quarter wow that's interesting see I I could see that happening in game four regard where because I don't know I'm assuming based on some of the reports last week that game four might be when Durant comes back Um, and that's why I think game three is so critical because if if it is game four that Durant comes back if the Raptors if the Warriors win game three take a 2-1 lead at Oracle with Durant coming back, then I could see that playing out in game four where they're just like down 20 in the first quarter. And it's like, well, I guess they're facing elimination at home. Um, so I think game three is critical. One thing I wanted to mention about the officiating too is forget whether it's like pro Toronto, pro Golden State. I just think the officiating in general has been bad through two games. And I'm not a believer in the whole like let them play because it's a playoffs thing. I think fouls should be like blow the whistle consistently in an NBA game, regardless of whether it's October, June, whatever, first quarter, fourth quarter. My issue is that it's the opposite in this series. Forget letting them play. These two teams in the regular season combined for 42 fouls a game. In the first three rounds of the playoffs, it was 45. Through two games of the finals, it's 50.5. That's way too many fouls for two teams that did not foul like that at any other point this year. You can't tell me all of a sudden they're that much handier. Like, I just think the whistle is too tight for this magnitude of games on both ends. Yeah, I mean, honestly, all they should strive for is consistency. Exactly. And I do think, for the most part, that that game was called consistently. I didn't like the flow of the game. I didn't like the pace of the game. It wasn't particularly enjoyable to watch a lot of the time, but I do think that it was officiated fairly consistently. So I think as long as that's the case, you can't complain too much. But I do think there's a case to be made that the Raptors were, you know, playing a lot better in that first half, and I don't think it served them well to have the game keep stopping on them like that. Agreed. Uh, but I think Steph deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, he was smart enough. I mean, one particular moment that really stands out is the Raptors get a steal. They run out on the break. Van Vliet throws that lob up. Siakam goes like 12 feet in the air to grab it with one hand and throw it down. Insane alley-oop. They go up six, and the building's going nuts. And immediately, like two seconds later, Steph runs the ball down the floor, stops on a dime at the three-point line, knows Van Vliet is behind him, and lets Van Vliet run into him as he's attempting a three and gets three free throws. Stuff like that. I mean, that's just ingenious. And that, that is how you interrupt the flow of a game. That's how you take a crowd out of the game. And that's how you keep it close, even when you're outgunned. Um, so I, I, the Warriors deserve a lot of credit, man. Yeah. Like they, 
again, you said no one's going to feel bad for the Warriors, which fair enough, but I do think they deserve a ton of credit for how resilient they have been, how much they have managed to wring out of their supporting cast, which Steve Kerr continues to insist on going like 10 or 11 deep pretty much every game. It's pretty incredible, man. Like, I, I don't know. If you had told me all the circumstances that were going to happen in that game too, right? Steph is under the weather. Iguodala is going to get his bell rung on a screen and leave the game for a bit. Looney is going to bust a rib or a collarbone or whatever it was and leave the game in the second quarter. Boogie is going to have to play 28 minutes. Bogut is going to have to get dusted off and play six minutes or seven minutes. Um, like Clay is going to leave the game in the fourth quarter and not return. I would have said they're going to lose 1,000%. And they didn't. And it's wild. I just, I can't wrap my head around it. Rudy Tomjanovich, baby. Rudy Tomjanovich quote. Yeah, there um, you go. You mentioned the Siakam, that insane lob, too, that he threw down. Um, one of the big stories in this game after Siakam's game one outburst was how well the Warriors got back in transition after completely botching their transition defense in game one. And the Raptors helped that a little bit with some of the poor spacing they had in general, even in transition. But the Warriors just got back a lot better, and that took away a lot of Pascal's easy offense. Um, mixed some coverages on him as well and took him out of the game. On that note, so Siakam has the big game one. Not really sure who the MVP of game two was. I'd probably lean Steph. Um, Steph or Draymond. Yeah, or Draymond. Good point. Um, Both those guys. I mean, Clay too. Jesus. So here's what I was going to ask you. Give me, through two games, who's your finals MVP in a tied series? (laughs) Or give me one from each team. What what is the point of this? (laughs) Because it's banter. Uh, Okay, so for the Warriors, it's Steph. Uh, He was easily their best player in game one. I think... Even if his individual production wasn't quite there in game two, he really wasn't shooting the ball particularly well, though he did drain a couple of ridiculous threes in the third quarter. Uh, just the way that he has bent the Raptors' defense and and just the patience that he shows when he does that, right? Like, it's not just the fact that he has the gravity he has. It's that he so often knows exactly what to do with that gravity, how to leverage it against a defense, exactly when to pass the ball and who to pass it to like breaking those traps that the Raptors send at him is not easy and we saw in game one he turned it over a couple times when Gasol came and trapped him that is a big boy standing in front of him with like I you know plus nine foot standing reach and so to make passes through those traps is really tough and like even to generate those four on three situations people just talk about it like it's a foregone conclusion that once you trap him it's four on three but it's not he has to actually make the pass and break that trap And we saw that Kawhi wasn't really able to do that on a few occasions. So Steph deserves a ton of credit for for what he has allowed the Warriors offense to do, particularly in game two. And again, like I just, I go back to 14 of 14 from the free throw line in game one. Same thing, you know, in game two when the the game's threatening to get away from them. As much as Clay's shooting was keeping them in it early, it it was Steph who late in that second quarter actually helped bring that thing under control and get it to single digits. And who kept getting himself to the free throw line Just in big spots. quick interruption. You mentioned him going 14 of 14 in game one. Kawhi, 16 of 16 yeah. from the free throw line in game Finals two. record, I think. Finals right? record for the most free throws without a miss. Um, also <laughs> interruption. That was a great soliloquy on Steph Curry. 
exactly the point of why I asked for a foot. See, if I didn't ask who the finals MVP was through two games, we wouldn't have got that great Wolf on analysis. Well, and- you could have just asked me what I thought of Steph Curry's well, play through two games. You know what? Next so, week when you're hosting. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd say Steph for the Warriors. Uh, I, I mean, Draymond was unbelievable in game two, but he had a pretty rough game one. So, tough to give it to him. And Clay had a so-so game one and then played three quarters of yeah. game two and was great. But... Um, it's. I think it's got to be Steph for the Warriors and for the Raptors. It's. I think it's got to be Kawhi. Uh, just see, I'd say it would have to be Pascal because in the one game they won, he was by far the best player on the court. Yeah, I suppose. But he really did have a massive drop off in game. Right. Two. I mean, if you average those two things out, and then Kawhi, as much as I was just bagging on his defense in that game, I mean, he pretty much single handedly willed them back into that game. They, they get down thirteen, and it's like. Nobody wants to shoot. It's like the thing that we've seen happen with the Raptors like a couple times throughout this postseason. When things start going bad and everybody looks a little bit rattled, suddenly Gasol's not pulling the trigger on those semi-open threes and Lowry isn't really hunting his shot at all. Or if he is, he's foul baiting. And it's just totally incumbent on Kawhi to make something happen. And he did it time and time again. And the, the, the reason that they had a chance at the end of that game was because he willed it so. Uh, so I, I would have to give it to him. And Pascal maybe would be number two, but honestly, Van Vliet, man, like he has yeah. been so good. Some of the shots he's hitting too, like you mentioned Lowry and Powell's inability to score over Boogie or whoever, whichever big man was in there on some of those switches. Van Vliet is defying logic right now, yeah. scoring literally while falling down and just throwing the ball over his head. Like I know. The, I, I would worry is, about that a bit if I was the Raptors yeah, because or, those are not great shots. They're not. But Or maybe this is regression of the mean for all the shots he missed, the good looks he missed in the first two and a half rounds. Well, it's also like, yeah, he's making these crazy contorting falling layups over big bodies, but then he's... Also, he also missed a bunch of wide open threes in that game, so I guess it kind of evens out that way. But I'm more so just mean for the defense he's played on Steph. Oh my god! And like that is a thankless job. I mean, I guess I'm thanking him for it now, so maybe it's not thankless. But that is a tough, tough task because you're not just trying to keep track of a guy who, as soon as he has a sliver of space, can bomb a three in your eye. You are tracking him all over the floor. And this is a guy who never stops moving. Yep. You know who the and one was in the box and one? Fred Van Vliet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, the, and I, don't, I don't even know if they bother going to that box and one if they don't have Van Vliet to Agreed. basically hound him. And another thing is, so Steph's usage rate in this game was 23%, which is by far his lowest in any game since Durant's injury. In the Portland series, it was 33%. Yeah. In game one, it was 29%. Yeah. So... And I think, you know, look, the Warriors, there's a method to that madness. Like, they, they take him off ball. It's like, look, you don't have to get pestered by Fred up and down the floor. Why don't you just jog across half court and not worry about having to get the ball across? Take a load off. Why don't you go and be a screener? Why don't you run off a screen and, you know, touch the ball, pass it off, and relocate to the other corner, see if you can gain a bit of separation? I think it's worked for them. But I also think, given the supporting cast... Given that KD isn't playing, given that Clay might not be playing, the ability to have a guy who can pester Steph to the point that he has to get rid of the ball is huge. Is huge. And and one hundred percent like that that box and one does not work at all no. without Van Vliet. Yeah. So I, I just think he's been incredible defensively and uh 
tireless. I mean, and he, he hasn't seen a drop-off despite despite having to run 8,000 miles a game. A lot of people have posted the second spectrum numbers and the like per-possession numbers, but um, you go back to the one game Steph played against the Raptors in the regular season, too. Fred Van Vliet has basically guarded Steph Curry better than anyone in the NBA has this season. Like, he has been phenomenal. Steph's numbers against Van Vliet as his primary defender are not good, and certainly not good for someone like Steph Curry. So, yeah, full credit to what Van Vliet's doing on the defensive end right now. Yeah, so, I mean, I just... My big question there is, like, part of the reason that Steph is... That Van Vliet is so good on Steph is he is hard to screen. He's really good at navigating around screens, fighting over top, staying in contact... Um, but this off-ball stuff is still giving them trouble. And mostly what they've done, like, when it's Steph or Clay coming off a pin down and they're receiving the ball, the Raptors have basically played, played that like they would a Steph pick and roll where they blitz it. And it's sort of the same thing. that Whoever's setting the screen can still roll to the basket off of that screen. And maybe it's a little tougher for Steph or Clay to make that pass because they're catching the ball rather than holding it in their hands. They have a little bit less time to actually thread that pass through. But they've done it a couple times, and it's led to buckets. I, I just... I don't know. I, I kind of expected, given their personnel, that they would hew a little bit closer to the switch-everything approach in this series. So it's weird to see that they haven't done it, that, they, that they've played those off-ball screens a little bit differently, especially considering that it's come back to burn them a couple of times. I think we'll see an adjustment in game three. I think they, I think we have to. Um, and I think we'll just see a sharper Raptors, def- like a more locked in. And it, it sounds so simple, but seriously, like we, uh, you know, I mentioned the difference in the Warriors' transition defense from game one to game two. Some of that might have been some X's and O's stuff, but a lot of that was literally just getting back in transition and stopping mm-hmm. some of those Siakam fast breaks. I think the Raptors will be a little better defensively in game three because I think they'll watch film um, – be disgusted at what they see in in the way the Warriors pick them apart with back cuts and yeah. and just be sharper, right? And be a little more attentive. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. So you look at it in game one and you say, man, the Warriors scored 84 points per 100 in the half court. Amazing. They end up with a 115 offensive rating that game anyway because they absolutely made hay in transition. And their second shot offense off of offensive rebounds was unstoppable i think they got 1.9 points per second shot possession so basically like the equivalent of getting a two-point basket every single time they came up with an offensive board and you're thinking look like the raptors more or less we've seen them do this half court defense thing throughout the postseason maybe it's not repeatable to that level but we know that it's going to be really good they clean up some of this other stuff, the transition, you know, getting defensive rebounds, etc. And they're going to be in good shape. Game two, they give up zero second chance points. Zero. In transition, the Warriors scored .77 points per possession, which against a, like a transition dynamo like Golden State is magnificent. But then they can't get stops in the half court. So it's like, I feel like it all just sort of ends up somewhere in the middle. And I think that's kind of at least unless or until we see KD come back, where it's going to end up. Golden State, 115 offensive rating in Game 1, 109 offensive rating in Game 2. That's sort of like the equilibrium there, I think. Against a good defense, 109, I think, is about what you can expect. And even that's pretty low. 109 for the Warriors is low, even against a defense as good as the Raptors. So, 
I, I think that's about where it'll end up. And, you know, to me, again, I keep saying this, it's just going to come down to the Raptors offense. Like, can they score enough? Yeah. And I don't know right now. I really don't. Like, I, I think... I think they'll probably experience some positive regression on the shooting front because, again, they got 24 wide-open threes in that game, too, and only made eight of them. And I think some of that is by design. Like, the Warriors are specifically giving up shots to the Ibakas and Gasols and Siakams and taking them away as much as they can, at least from, you know, the Kawhis and the Lowrys, but... Mostly just from Kawhi. Yeah, I mean, they're they're crowding him. They're making it tough. Like, he's gotten a couple off against a drop coverage. But even then, like, the, the Warriors done a really good job getting over top of screens and challenging their shots from behind, like, forcing him into the mid-range and running him off the arc. They haven't made it particularly easy on him. So, you know, those wide-open shot stats do lie a little bit. I mean, Siakam got hot after hitting a couple above-the-break threes in Game 1 and he couldn't get any to go down in game two, despite getting clean look after clean look. That's really is so important for him and for the Raptors' offense. Like, if he isn't knocking down those corner threes, it's pretty tough for them to, to create space. All right, so we both had Raptors in seven. I'm, st- I'm sticking with that. I assume you are, too. I don't, or I don't know, maybe you're not. Well, like I mean, look, you, you know how I feel about waffling, so yeah, I, mean, I, I strive for consistency, um, just like Ed Malloy, Tony <laughs> Brothers, and geez. Mark Davis. Uh and so, yeah, I will stick with Raptors but in seven. What but. I was going to ask is, so you were mentioning, you know, you could see the avalanche carrying over to game three for the Warriors and the Raptors finding themselves down big. If, if Clay is playing and if he is not totally physically Right, but okay, so then in that case, because I believe Clay will find a way to play, that avalanche carries over and then Durant really can come back for game four. Like, how do the Raptors win the series? I, they don't. They don't. Exactly. They don't. Um, so I that's think, why I'm going with, I think the Raptors win game three. Well, it's a really important game for them, so yeah. it would be nice for them and for us, uh, you know, who have followed and cared about this team for a long time, if they can if they th- can pull that off. I think one of these two games that we're called are going to be a Warriors blowout. Totally possible. I mean, what the KD thing is like, as far as we know, he hasn't practiced yet. We have Steve Kerr on record saying he's not going to play until he practices, until he gets a full practice yeah. in. And... The only real intel we have about when he's actually going to come back is this Chris Haynes report, but we don't know where that came from, and we don't know if that's something, you know, like, KD traveled with the Warriors to Toronto, even though they obviously knew that he wasn't going to play. I think there was gamesmanship going on there. I think there might still be gamesmanship going on, and they obviously know a lot more than we do. But if I was the Warriors, I would be throwing smoke screens out there like that and letting the Raptors think that he's going to come back and not knowing whether or not they can game plan for him or not or, you know, what really they can game plan for at all. Same thing with the Clay Thompson situation, right? It's like they have every incentive to play that close to the vest and, and not let anything slip. And I think that that's got to be like psychologically a little bit difficult for the Raptors. And I know... I don't believe in this stuff as much as some people do, and especially with a team like the Raptors led by a seemingly psychological, psychologically unbreakable person yeah. like Kawhi Leonard. But I do think it's got to be tough when you don't know what team you're going to be playing against. Yeah, but I think, I mean, on that level, it's probably equally tough for the Warriors because I, I genuinely think they don't know whether these guys are like... Right, but they they already know who they are. You know what I mean? Like, they know what they have to do or what they're going to do if and when those guys play like the Raptors have been playing one team so far in this series and 
they already have adjustments to make just playing against that team. Yeah, but team. Do, do the Warriors actually know who they are without Clay or KD? I know for seven and a half minutes they did, and they were pretty bad, actually, offensively when they did it. So, like, I don't know. Do they <laughs> right. really know who they are? They've literally never played a playoff game without Clay. Yeah, that's that's a good point. So, I don't think they, like, again, I I assume Clay plays. He's saying he's probably going to play, and I assume his teammates assume he will play because of how resilient he's been and durable he's been. Right, no, no, okay, yeah. So, I want to be clear. If Clay doesn't play... There's no psychological toll that's going to make that a win for the Warriors. Exactly. Like that, that's yeah. obviously a win for the yeah. Raptors. So that's not really what I meant. I more just mean as far as like your preparation, okay, yeah. whether it's tactics, whether it's practice, whether it's just sort of thinking about the task in front of you, uh, I think the not knowing has got to be a little bit difficult. And I think the Warriors probably know that. <laughs> I think that's why we haven't really heard anything concrete about any of these injuries, except for the Kevon Looney one, which <laughs> I guess broke his chest. Yeah. Well, and how do you, so it ended up being a fracture, and it, well, neither of us are doctors, clearly, but they called it a sprained collarbone. First, one of us you, should become a doctor so we can just stop saying how, this at some point in time. How do you sprain a collarbone? And then it ended up being revealed as a fracture, but in game, yeah, I don't know how you sprain he was a bone. out with a sprained collarbone. I didn't know you could do that either. Um, clearly, uh, we've reached the ends of uh, what we have to talk about in this series so far, unless you have anything else to add. The only thing I'll add, and I think it's a very obvious statement but if clay actually is out and durant still isn't back for game three holy hell that's as close to a must-win game for the raptors without being a mathematical must-win game yeah i i mean does it really change like if if clay i don't, I guess it just depends on how long clay is actually going to be out for how soon he can get back and again with this durant thing like it's really impossible to know but, but again based on all that based on the fact you don't know everything you just said about not knowing like man they should really try very hard to win game three yeah, i'll say I, that yeah. i'm not going to go and call it a must win but it's a should strongly consider winning situation <laughs> all right well why don't on, we end on that note on that note i strongly <laughs> consider ending this podcast now <laughs> Um, it's been real man I'm gonna go get some sleep yeah go do that and we're probably gonna be back later this week on Thursday with a yes. post game three reaction with, with a post should strongly consider win game yeah reaction alright found the rock till then till then